Chapter 2 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, by W.E.B. Du Bois. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Plantain Colonies Character of these colonies The Plantain Colonies are those southern settlements whose climate and character destined them to be the chief theater of North American slavery. The early attitude of these communities toward the slave trade is therefore of peculiar interest, for their action was of necessity largely decisive for the future of the trade and for the institution in North America. Theirs was the only soil, climate, and society suited to slavery. In the other colonies, with few exceptions, the institution was, by these same factors, doomed from the beginning. Hence, only strong moral and political motives could in the planting colonies overthrow or check a traffic so favored by the mother country. Restrictions in Georgia In Georgia, we have an example of a community whose philanthropic founders sought to impose upon it a code of morals higher than the colonists wished. The settlers of Georgia were of even worse moral fiber than their slave-trading and whiskey-using neighbors in Carolina and Virginia. Yet Oglethorpe and the London proprietors prohibited from the beginning both the rum and the slave traffic, refusing to suffer slavery, which is against the gospel as well as the fundamental law of England, to be authorized under our authority. The trustees sought to win the colonists over to their belief by telling them that money could be better expended in transporting white men than Negroes, that slaves would be a source of weakness to the colony, and that the produces designed to be raised in the colony would not require such labor as to make Negroes necessary for carrying them on. This policy greatly displeased the colonists, who, from 1735, the date of the first law, to 1749, did not cease to clamor for the repeal of the restrictions. As their English agents said, they insisted that, in spite of all endeavors to disguise this point, it is as clear as light itself that Negroes are as essentially necessary to the cultivation of Georgia as axes, hoes, or any other utensil of agriculture. Meantime, evasions and infractions of the laws became frequent and notorious. Negroes were brought across from Carolina and hired for life. Finally, purchases were openly made in Savannah from African traders. Some seizures were made by those who opposed the principle but as a majority of the magistrates were favorable to the introduction of slaves into the province, legal decisions were suspended from time to time, and a strong disposition evidenced by the courts to evade the operation of the law. At last, in 1749, the colonists prevailed on the trustees and the government, and the trade was thrown open under careful restrictions which limited importation required a registry, and quarantine on all slaves brought in and laid a duty. It is probable, however, that these restrictions were never enforced, and that the trade thus established continued unchecked until the Revolution. Restrictions in South Carolina 
South Carolina had the largest and most widely developed slave trade of any of the continental colonies. This was owing to the character of her settlers, her nearness to the West Indian slave marts, and the early development of certain staple crops, such as rice, which were adapted to slave labor. Moreover, this colony suffered much less interference from the home government than many other colonies. Thus, it is possible here to trace the untrammeled development of slave trade restrictions in a typical planting community. As early as 1698, the slave trade to South Carolina had reached such proportions that it was thought that the great number of Negroes which of late have been imported into this colony may endanger the safety thereof. The immigration of white servants was therefore encouraged by a special law. Increase of immigration reduced this disproportion, but Negroes continued to be imported in such numbers as to afford considerable revenue from a moderate duty on them. About the time when the asiento was signed, the slave trade so increased that, scarcely a year after the consummation of that momentous agreement, two heavy-duty acts were passed. Because the number of Negroes do extremely increase in this province, and through the afflicting providence of God, the white persons do not proportionally multiply, by reason whereof the safety of the said province is greatly endangered. The trade, however, by reason of the encouragement abroad, and of increased business activity in exporting naval stores at home, suffered scarcely any check, although repeated acts, reciting the danger incident to a great importation of Negroes, were passed, laying high duties. Finally, in 1717, an additional duty of 40 pounds, although in depreciated currency, succeeded so nearly in stopping the trade that, two years later, all existing duties were repealed and one of ten pounds substituted. This continued during the time of resistance to the proprietary government, but by 1734 the importation had reached large proportions. We must therefore beg leave, the colonists write in that year, to inform your majesty that amidst our other perilous circumstances we are subject to many intestine dangers from the great number of Negroes that are now among us, who amount at least to 22,000 persons, and are three to one of all of your majesty's white subjects in this province. Insurrections against us have been often attempted. In 1740, an insurrection under a slave, Cato, at Stono, caused such widespread alarm that a prohibitory duty of a hundred pounds was immediately laid. Importation was again checked, but in 1751 the colony sought to devise a plan whereby the slightly restricted immigration of Negroes should provide a fund to encourage the importation of white servants, to prevent the mischiefs that may be attended by the great importation of Negroes into this province. Many white servants were thus encouraged to settle in the colony, but so much larger was the influx of black slaves that the colony, in 1760, totally prohibited the slave trade. This act was promptly disallowed by the Privy Council, 
and the governor reprimanded. But the colony declared that an importation of Negroes, equal in number to what have been imported of late years, may prove of the most dangerous consequence in many respects to this province. And the best way to obviate such danger will be by imposing such an additional duty upon them as may totally prevent the evils. A prohibitive duty of a hundred pounds was accordingly imposed in 1764. This duty probably continued until the revolution. The war made a great change in the situation. It has been computed by good judges that, between the years 1775 and 1783, the state of South Carolina lost 25,000 Negroes by actual hostilities, plunder of the British, runaways, etc. After the war, the trade quickly revived, and considerable revenue was raised from duty acts until 1787, when by act and ordinance the slave trade was totally prohibited. This prohibition, by renewals from time to time, lasted until 1803. Restrictions in North Carolina In early times, there were few slaves in North Carolina. This fact, together with the troubled and turbulent state of affairs during the early colonial period, did not necessitate the adoption of any settled policy towards slavery or the slave trade. Later, the slave trade to the colony increased, but there is no evidence of any effort to restrict or in any way regulate it before 1786, when it was declared that the importation of slaves into the state is productive of evil consequences and highly impolitic, and a prohibitive duty was laid on them. Restrictions in Virginia Next to South Carolina, Virginia had probably the largest slave trade. Her situation, however, differed considerably from that of her southern neighbor. The climate, the staple tobacco crop, and the society of Virginia were favorable to a system of domestic slavery, but one which tended to develop into a patriarchal serfdom rather than into a slave-consuming industrial hierarchy. The labor required by the tobacco crop was less unhealthy than that connected with the rice crop, and the Virginians were, perhaps, on a somewhat higher moral plane than the Carolinians. There was consequently no such insatiable demand for slaves in the larger colony. On the other hand, the power of the Virginia executive was peculiarly strong, and it was not possible here to thwart the slave trade policy of the home government as easily as elsewhere. Considering all these circumstances, it is somewhat difficult to determine just what was the attitude of the early Virginians toward the slave trade. There is evidence, however, to show that although they desired the slave trade, the rate at which the Negroes were brought in soon alarmed them. In 1710, a duty of five pounds was laid on Negroes, but Governor Spotswood soon perceived that the laying so high a duty on Negroes was intended to discourage the importation and vetoed the measure. No further restrictive legislation was attempted for some years, but whether on account of the attitude of the governor 
or the desire of the inhabitants is not clear. With 1723 begins a series of acts extending down to the revolution, which, so far as their contents can be ascertained, seem to have been designed effectually to check the slave trade. Some of these acts, like those of 1723 and 1727, were almost immediately disallowed. The Act of 1732 laid a duty of 5%, which was continued until 1769, and all other duties were in addition to this, so that by such cumulative duties, the rate of slaves reached 25% in 1755 and 35% at the time of Braddock's expedition. These acts were found very burdensome, introductive of many frauds, and very inconvenient, and were so far repealed by 1761, the duty was only 15%, and now the Burgesses became more powerful, two or more bills proposing restrictive duties were passed, but disallowed. By 1772, the anti-slave trade feeling had become considerably developed, and the Burgesses petitioned the king, declaring that the importation of slaves into the colonies from the coast of Africa had been long considered as a trade of great inhumanity, and under its present encouragement, we have too much reason to fear will endanger the very existence of your majesty's american dominions deeply impressed with these sentiments we most humbly beseech your majesty to remove all those restraints on your majesty's governors of this colony which inhibit their assenting to such laws as might check so very pernicious a commerce nothing further appears to have been done before the war when, in 1776, the delegates adopted a frame of government, it was charged in this document that the king had perverted his high office into a detestable and insupportable tyranny by prompting our negroes to rise in arms among us. Those very negroes whom, by an inhuman use of his negative, he hath refused us permission to exclude by law. Two years later, in 1778, an act to prevent the further importation of slaves stopped definitively the legal slave trade to Virginia. Restrictions in Maryland Not until the impulse of the asiento had been felt in America did Maryland make any attempt to restrain a trade from which she had long enjoyed a comfortable revenue. The Act of 1717, laying a duty of 40 shillings, may have been a mild restrictive measure. The duties were slowly increased to 50 shillings in 1754 and 4 pounds in 1763. In 1771, a prohibitive duty of 9 pounds was laid, and in 1783, after the war, all importation by sea was stopped and illegally imported Negroes were freed. Compared with the trade to Virginia and the Carolinas, the slave trade to Maryland was small and seems at no time to have reached proportions which alarmed the inhabitants. It was regulated to the economic demand by a slowly increasing tariff, and finally, after 1769, had nearly ceased of its own accord before the restrictive legislation of revolutionary times. Probably the proximity of Maryland to Virginia made an independent slave trade less necessary to her general character of these restrictions. 
We find in the planting colonies all degrees of advocacy of the trade, from the passiveness of Maryland to the clamor of Georgia. Opposition to the trade did not appear in Georgia, was based almost solely on political fear of insurrection Carolina, and sprang largely from the same motive in Virginia, mingled with some moral repugnance. As a whole, it may be said that whatever opposition to the slave trade there was in the planting colonies was based principally on the political fear of insurrection. End of chapter 2